Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Ben, and it is so great to be with you here this morning. Normally, at this time, I am with the youth group, but I'm super honored uh, to be with you here this morning. Before we get going, I just want to remind you that uh, we have this video live streams on Vimeo, on Vimeo, on YouTube, on Facebook, but the best place to connect with the online service is if you go to onelifeseattle.org forward slash live. Because there you can access a live chat. Um, you, there's a prayer app where people will pray with you there. There's a Bible app to follow along with the sermon. And there's even spots to take notes. So with that, the past few weeks, we have been going through the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, which Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Let's read it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, also known as patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And over the past few weeks, we have talked about how Paul calls them fruit because they are natural results from a life fully connected to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We don't just simply manufacture these fruits out of nowhere. Instead, they are formed by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So in this sermon series, we've been talking about how to cultivate these various fruits. And we specifically uh, are talking about it in light of different cultural influences that might be stifling these fruits' growth. We've also mentioned uh, that these fruit overlap quite a bit. For example, if uh, you don't have any forbearance, like you're not a patient person at all, it's hard to also be a kind person. Patience and kindness seem to have some overlapping, and joy seems to cover them all as well. So that's important to keep in mind. Some of these things we talk about today in terms of goodness— because that's the fruit that we're talking about today, could also be applied maybe to love or patience or kindness um, and other, other fruits as well. So let's pray before we get going. God, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are for us. Thank you that you are goodness, that you are beautiful. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, you would encourage us, and you would convict us so that we can be people that manifest goodness in this world that we'd be people who love people well, um, and that we would know that, um, yeah, we would know that we are just beloved by you, and that would change our entire identity. Amen. So as I started to think about this fruit of the Spirit, goodness, I became more and more convinced that this, at least in my opinion, is the most vague and amorphous and ambiguous fruit of the Spirit. There's just so much confusion around the good word, around the word, sorry, around the word good in general. Uh, For example, in Genesis chapter one, that's the very first page of the Bible. God uh, creates everything and he calls it good. He calls it good. However, if I go up to you someday and and I say, hey, how are you doing? And you respond with, I'm good. That's not really like great, but it's not bad. It's sort of somewhere in the middle. It's a little bit confusing because in English, good a lot of times gets reduced down to mediocrity. However, in the Bible and in the history of the church, good is considered foundational and does not need anything added to it. Hence, when God declared creation good, it was complete, he he was saying, and it was fulfilling its purpose. Another reason why goodness can be confusing is because we often reduce good to to my own subjective opinion on it. So now goodness is created within as opposed to discovered outside. For example, Philip Kinnison says this about, uh, about this idea. About, 
he says, we find it increasingly difficult to, dis- to discuss what used to be called the common good. In its place, we have substituted the notion that individuals should be free to determine for themselves what is good and right in any particular situation. Although there are some legal boundaries that would restrain us from doing what we agree is wrong to do, there is little that would help us know what is right or good to do. As a result, the good and the right are increasingly being reduced to what is legal. In short, if one has not broken any laws, one is a good or moral person. And whenever we have this confusion around the term good, it causes a shallow understanding of goodness along with just confusion in general. And then this confusion can lead to a sense of moral superiority. We don't know exactly what good is, but I know I'm better than that person over there. And so we look around and I look at someone and I say, I'm better than that politician. I'm better than my neighbor who did, you know, fill in the blank. I'm better than, and then you start dividing things by class, by political views, and you just find your goodness in just a general sense of moral superiority and, honestly, hypocrisy. Which reminds me of a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he was a political prisoner in the Soviet Union. He was in the gulags for many years. And he experienced human evil beyond what I can personally imagine. And this is what he said. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. See, Solzhenitsyn didn't just look out and say, oh, it's, all, it's only the Soviet Union that's evil, not me. But he recognized even the, the sin and the lack of goodness in his own heart and in his own actions. And Jesus taught something similar in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In this parable, a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple to pray. And just for a quick background, the Pharisees were considered sort of heroes for their time. They were considered the people's man. And um, they were teaching people how to better live up to uh, God's law, or at least how they envisioned it to be. And a lot of people really looked up to them. And tax collectors were hated and reviled. They were viewed as traitors to their country, and they were not well-liked. And they certainly weren't considered uh, good followers of God. So this Pharisee and the tax collector, they go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee goes up there, and this is what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. And then the tax, then the tax collector stood further away. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, and he beat his chest, which is sort of a symbol of repentance. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. After sharing this parable, Jesus looked around at his disciples and the people following him. And he told them that it wasn't the Pharisee, but the tax collector who went home in good relationship with God. And this would have come as quite the shock to his audience. But the point is simple. Do not derive your sense of goodness by comparing yourself to others or by leaning into moral superiority. Do not view yourself as better because you voted a certain way or you have certain views on social issues or because you go to church every Sunday or you read your Bible every day. Instead, the only person we should be comparing ourselves to is God. When that happens, the playing field is leveled out because we all realize we cannot match his infinite goodness. Finally, another way goodness is made confusing is just how the the trite ways we sometimes declare God to be good. Some, someone might be going through a hard time and we just tell them, don't worry, God is good. Although the person might be struggling with how can God be good when they've experienced such brutal hardship and pain. This isn't to say, I don't think God is good, 
but that we should be more careful tossing out cliche sayings that might make light of someone's current experiences. So what is biblical goodness? I think there are two overarching um, ways in which goodness manifests in our lives. It's restorative and redemptive. So restorative slash redemptive, and it is beautiful. So first we'll talk about how good, the fruit of goodness is restorative, it is redemptive. When I think of the word good, the first thing that comes to mind is Genesis chapter 1, which we've already briefly talking, uh, spoken about. So in Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep waters. And you have to understand that in that culture, uh, the deep waters were considered places of chaos and of disorder. So nothing has been created yet. There's just the deep waters and the Holy Spirit is hovering over that. And then out of that chaos and disorder, God speaks into existence the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he declares them to be good. He speaks into existence animals and trees and plants and fruit. And he declares it to be good. And at the pinnacle of creation, he creates humankind in his image. And after that, he says, creation is very good. Then we arrive in Genesis chapter 2. And God places... um, Adam and humankind in a garden to keep and work it. Humans were created not to just chill there and, and, and sit around, but they were, they were created to continue the creation project of taking the raw elements and the chaos and the disorder and stewarding them and bringing forth something beautiful, something good. However, as many of you know, humans decided to define what is good and what is evil for themselves. As opposed to trusting in God's goodness, they wanted to define it for themselves. So we have God's ideal, his declaration that the universe is good. Then we see humanity declaring their own intentions concerning what is good, which leads to a fracturing and and to a brokenness in all of creation. And we witness this right away in the story of the Bible with brother killing brother in Genesis chapter 4. And then further on in Genesis chapter 4, a guy named Lamech is bragging to his many wives that he killed someone for almost no reason. (laughs) He's bragging about it. And now we know what evil is. It is a mutation or deprivation of God's intended purpose for this world. But thankfully, God has been working to bring the universe back to its original purpose. And we have been invited to not only sit on the sidelines and watch, but to partner in that task. Thus, one aspect of the fruit of goodness is seeking the redemption and the restoration of God's goodness in this broken world. In the New Testament, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Remember, Adam was the figure that was put in the garden to tend to it and um, to bring beauty uh, in the garden. And so Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. And then what's interesting is whenever you come, uh, go back to the Gospels, and Jesus has been crucified, and then he's resurrected, uh, but the people in the story don't know that yet. And Mary is at the tomb. And she looks in the tomb and she sees it's empty, but there's these angels sitting there and she's a little confused. Then somebody asks her a question and she turns around and we're told that it's Jesus, but she doesn't realize that. And guess who she thinks it is? She thinks it's that she's talking to the gardener. Remember, the original human vocation of tending to God's goodness was symbolized by gardening in Genesis chapter two. And now Jesus, the second Adam, has been resurrected and he appears to resemble a gardener. G.K. Chesterton, a theologian from about a century ago, had this to say about this passage. On the third day, 
the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth, and in a semblance of the gardener God, and in the semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool not of the evening, but of the dawn. And he highlights the dawn because um, the dawn symbolizes the beginning of something new. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus symbolized. The beginning of something new and good and beautiful. And then Peter, when he was telling other people about the good news of Jesus in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 38, he says this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. You see, when the Holy Spirit is within us and the fruit of goodness comes forth, we shall desire to, like Jesus, go around doing good and calling creation back to its intended purpose of goodness. We remind people that this is not the way things are meant to be, not only with words, but with our lives. This could include speaking out on racial justice, seeking to take care of the earth, feeding those who are hungry, praying with and crying with those who are in pain, being generous with our time and our money, and just generally pointing out that God is grieved by the state of our world. This is not his will. And we, filled with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, are to bring creation back in line with his good and perfect desire for it. So goodness is restorative and redemptive. It brings creation back to the original good intentions of its creator, God. Second thing, goodness is beautiful. A few hundred years before Jesus arrived, there was a really well-known philosopher named Plato who you might have heard of. And a lot of scholars believe that Paul has been influenced by him to varying degrees. He certainly read him um, and, you know, people debate these things. Personally, I don't think he was influenced a ton. I think there's some things where he disagreed pretty significantly with Plato. But Paul uses the same word for good as Plato does when he makes this famous statement, which is, the good is the beautiful. What Plato is saying is that if something is good, it is beautiful. Because if something is good, then it is compelling. It is captivating. It draws you in. I'm sure many of you have had moments like that. Maybe it's driving down I-5 and seeing Mount Rainier rising above you or listening to a song that brings you to tears or hearing a story that takes you into a new world or gazing at a work of art and getting lost in it or seeing a baby's face light up and let out a laugh with their entire body. I think this is what Paul means when he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see, goodness is beautiful, and it functions as a witness, a signpost to the divine. Goodness manifested is beautiful, and it points beyond itself to mystery and wonder and glory. It points to God himself. Jesus speaks of this when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So our good deeds point people to God. 
So when the fruit of goodness manifests in our lives, we are like a light to those around us. It's beautiful and it's compelling and it draws others in. Unfortunately, we as a church have not always done this. There's a really well-known painting by Van Gogh, you should be able to see it right now, called Starry Night. Um, And this uh, painting is him looking out the window. He was in an asylum and he painted what he saw outside him, obviously in an abstract way. Uh, And it's this village and then just a beautiful night sky above it. And if you look closely, you'll see that a lot of the houses have a light in them, or all the houses have a light inside them. The windows are lit up. But then when you look at the church, which you should be able to see on the left side of your screen, when you look at the church, there is no light. Van Gogh did not view the church as a place of of light. He did not view it as a beacon of hope. His experience with it was not good. And so in his painting, the church remains dark. And I worry that we, as a church, a global church, and specifically church in America, might be going down that path as well. So how can we, as followers of Jesus, cultivate goodness and beauty and point more people to the source of all that is good and beautiful? I think there's two ways that we cultivate beauty. First, we highlight the beauty around us and we live beautiful lives. See, as Christians, I think we're called to highlight the good, the true, and the beautiful, to frame reality in a beautiful way that is both compelling and attractive, and it points to the source of beauty, God. One problem in our culture is is, uh, social media usage. And as I'm sure you're aware, many studies have linked um, social media usage to higher rates of depression and general dissatisfaction with life. And there are a couple reasons for this. But one of the primary ones is that people put up a facade on Facebook. We post pictures of our beautiful vacations, but don't mention the fights with the family along the way. We usually post things that we think other people will be interested in, which honestly makes sense. That's fine. The problem, though, is that when other people, all of us, whenever we're scrolling through Facebook, we think everyone out there is just having a great time. They're hanging out with friends. They're going on epic hikes. They're witnessing gorgeous sunsets. And here I am, stuck at home, lonely, bored, and depressed. And as a result, as a culture, we've begun to associate what is beautiful only with epic mountain ranges, stormy oceans, brilliant sunsets, perfect bodies, you name it. And don't get me wrong, those are beautiful. However, God did not only call the mountains and bald eagles beautiful. He declared it all to be good. Every single thing was declared good. All to be beautiful. As Christians, I think we need to be better at framing and capturing the beauty in the everyday life. For example, I watched a documentary a couple of weeks ago called My Octopus Teacher. And it's about this guy in South Africa who's going through a rough time. And he he pretty much goes down to the coast where he grew up, off the coast of South Africa. And he just goes scuba diving every day with his camera. Which I have to say, or not scuba diving, sorry, snorkeling every day with his camera. I have to say, I wish I could just go live on the coast for a while whenever I wanted to and just go snorkeling um, all day, every day. But while he's snorkeling, he comes across this octopus. And he has this idea. I'm going to videotape this octopus and follow it around day and night as much as I'm able to for an entire year and see what happens. And I'll be honest, when I read the premise of this documentary, I was like, I don't know, that sounds a little boring to me. Following one octopus around for an entire year that, and we watch it for an hour and a half, seems a little boring. But let me tell you, it was so incredibly moving and beautiful that I even cried at the end of the documentary about one octopus. Now, to be fair, I am a sentimental crier. It doesn't take much for a movie or a song 
or a last minute Seahawks touchdown to make me cry. But my wife, she is not like that. She's not a sentimental crier. In fact, at our wedding, I was crying a bunch and she didn't cry one bit. And I've never seen her cry in a movie. However, at the end of my octopus teacher, even she teared up a bit over a documentary following an octopus. You see, that filmmaker captured the beauty in the small things, in the daily struggles, the beauty in the mundane life of an octopus. And whether he meant to or not, he pointed Lauren and I to the creator of all, God himself. One thing about beauty is that you are drawn in and desire to experience it again. Even if it is just the daily life of an octopus, I can't get enough. I became a dad last year, and I'm addicted to seeing and hearing my baby laugh. It's just so cute. At first, he would laugh at pretty much anything. Then I started making sillier faces and weirder noises. Just after a while, he gets used to it. So you just have to keep on getting more and more extreme, and next thing you know, you're wearing weird things and dancing around the kitchen trying to make him laugh. And I do that because it is beautiful, and I can't get enough of it. And if we are truly lights on a hill, then people will be compelled and attracted to the church similarly. They won't be able to get enough of the community of faith and will be drawn towards the story of Jesus that we model. And so how do we manifest, one of the ways we manifest goodness and beauty around us, or another way we do it, is by living beautiful lives. So we frame beauty around us and we point out the good and the beautiful around us and we live beautiful lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 sums it up like this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You have to remember whenever uh, you read the New Testament that they, the, the Christians were a persecuted minority in a massive, powerful empire. The empire actively promoted the worship of many gods because they felt that led to more cohesion. They also pre- preached the divinity and godship of the emperor. But here was a group of people who preached that there was one God and that the true king was Jesus, who was the son of God. You can see how this was not well accepted by the authorities. And these Christians couldn't go out and vote to change things or lead a social media campaign or write blogs or New York Times best-selling books or viral YouTube videos. They weren't able to do that. Instead, they voted with their lives. They attempted to lead such beautiful lives that, as Peter says, Though the society around them might hate them, they would see the beauty of their lives and come to Jesus. So what does a beautiful life look like? I think a beautiful life is lived authentically, living authentically in light of the story of Jesus. And I sort of hesitate to use the word authentic because uh, it's used many ways in our culture that I'm not referring to. So often authenticity itself is viewed as the highest good. So just being authentic means it's good. Um, And that's not what I'm saying. And you might hear the phrase, I'm just being true to myself as though that is inherently good. No, I'm saying that being authentic cleanses us of moral superiority and hypocrisy and opens us up for the story of Jesus to shine more brightly. When we don't pretend to have our life together, we present a much more compelling view of Jesus. I was talking to someone from our church who, uh, over the past few years, sometime the past few years, they, they discovered that they're an alcoholic. And just to clarify, I got their permission to share this. <laughs> you don't have to worry that anything you share with me might all of a sudden end up on, on Sunday morning illustration. <laughs> so they, this person went through the whole process of rehab, and they got very involved with Alcoholics Anonymous. And when they first told me this, there was such a lightness and a freedom in their demeanor. 
They weren't ashamed. They weren't embarrassed. They weren't trying to hide anything. They were living in complete freedom, and it was beautiful. When I asked them why they were like that, they told me about the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and how they work. This person said, first, you say your name, and you state that you are an alcoholic. You don't just say general things you struggle with afterwards, but you name specific ways alcoholism has affected your life and how it's affected the people around you. So pretty much you're naming your specific sins in front of a whole group. And what's beautiful is that since most people there have gotten to a similar place of acknowledging their addictions and the effect is having on the people around them, there's no judgment. People there are able to hold whatever is said. And once you state your issue, you can begin the process of healing and moving forwards. This idea of confession is a central component to Catholicism, and I think we, as Protestants, have lost the freedom and beauty that confession brings. In fact, Peter says that refreshment follows repentance, and repentance has an element of confession within it. This is what he says exactly. Repent then, this is Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that each one of us needs to get up in front of the whole church and air all of our dirty laundry and tell all of our deepest struggles and sins and pain and shame. But too often in the church, we want to hide these things and put on a mask uh, and pretend we have it all together. If I was not a Christian and I was going through a hard time, I wouldn't want to be part of a community where everyone seemed to have it all together. And Alcoholics Anonymously certainly wouldn't work very well if everyone there just pretended to be okay. Instead, if we acknowledge our issues, if we acknowledge our sin, we can better live out and share the story of Jesus because that is the most beautiful story ever told. It is the story of how God remained committed to humanity when humanity wanted to define goodness for itself. When we live this out, we are telling people that God loves them despite their addictions, despite any sin in their life. We're telling them that God was so committed to humanity that God the Son became human in Jesus. And God didn't just become a king or anything, but Jesus was a humble, brown-skinned Jew living in the backwoods of the Roman Empire. Jesus experienced pain, hunger, ridicule. He was betrayed by those closest to to him. He was brutally tortured and mocked in front of everyone. And he was crucified for our sins. That alone is beautiful to tell people that the God of this universe would go to such great lengths for them, no matter what they have done. However, it doesn't end there. Jesus conquered sin and death and was resurrected into new life. And he is asking us to partake in his story, to not sit on the sidelines and watch, but to be part of his kingdom program. That is why the Holy Spirit was given to followers of Jesus, to empower us to better follow Jesus and manifest the fruit of the Spirit wherever we are. So when we live authentic lives, we reveal that we need Jesus just as much as the next person. We show that we are not perfect. We show that we experience pain and hardship and doubt as well. We rid ourselves of any arrogant moral superiority. And in the midst of it all, in the midst of the brokenness, we have hope. We are because we are part of a story that gives us hope and purpose and meaning. And when we have an authentic community like that, then it will be beautiful and good. We will be like a bright city on a hill, which people find beautiful and desire to be a part of. So just to recap, the fruit of goodness leads people to seeking to restore creation to its original goodness. And also, goodness is beautiful. 
And the beauty of goodness shows itself by the way we frame the world around us and by the authentic, beautiful lives we live. Here are some reflection questions for you to ponder. And if you're on the online platform, you can actually click on connection card and um, the questions will be there. And it would be great if you could respond there and we can get your responses and hear how you're processing and thinking through the fruit of goodness. And we really appreciate you responding to these questions that way. So first question, do you think goodness is beautiful? Why or why not? What is something you find beautiful? What about it is beautiful? And last question, why do you think confession leads to such freedom? Is there anyone in your life to whom you can confess your sins? Now Brian is going to close us with the song. Don't forget that you can click on the prayer app if you'd like for someone to pray with you. And don't forget you can use the connection cards to fill out uh, your responses. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are committed to us. Thank you, you, are, thank you that you are so good even when I'm not. Thank you that you are beautiful and the story you've invited us to be part of is beautiful and compelling. I pray that we'd all be overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus, that we'd be overwhelmed and desire to partake in it as well, and that that would transform our lives and that we would exhibit the fruit of goodness to everyone around us, that we would seek the restoration of this world back to its original purpose that you designed it for, that we would point out the beauty around us, that we would show people where you are present, even when it seems hard to see you there. And I pray that we would live beautiful, authentic lives. In your name we pray, amen.